Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And just occurs to me, we should probably like say the date or something. Wouldn't that be nice for people if you we think said so? what date it is? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. It banter, is banter, banter, banter. <laughs> Tuesday, what? May what? 11th? 11th. No. May yeah, 11th. It wow. Is. It is. So, uh, friend, what's astonishing you on what's this Tuesday morning? What's astonishing me? Listen, we have... You know it's good when it starts with listen. <laughs> it's going to be good. We have three of the most wonderful, courageous, powerful elders on our board um, called The Session in Presbyterian Churches. Three women who um, have really been in the spirit and um, are examples of... Again, I'll use the word uh, courageous leadership. Uh, we, like many congregations in the congregation in, in the country right now, are um, at a real point of health and growth or um, decline, mm -hmm. continued decline. And three of the women on our elder board have lately been not only vocal, but with their actions, have been risk takers, have been champions of hard things, have leaned into the hard work of being the church in this season. And not only am I proud of them as their pastor, um, I'm inspired by them. They have... Um, Put some wind in my sails. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of that place in the Bible where you know Moses is holding up the staff, and there's Aaron and her mm -hmm. uh, who come alongside him. And you know, instead of Aaron and her, I have um, Alice and Helen. I mean, those are not their names, but you get the point. Um, so yeah, I am astonished by the work of God in these uh, courageous leaders and. Once again, I'm reminded of so many people in the body of Christ today who uh, discount, who ignore uh, the leadership of women uh, in the church, uh, even those who say that women are not called to be elders, not called to preach. Um, they have a hard time with Deborah uh, because these three women, they just have big Deborah energy uh, in uh, the midst of um, to write a church at this point. And I celebrate them. I celebrate what the Lord is doing in them and through them. And again, they are beautiful and powerful examples of, of leadership. We were talking on our walk before just about, um, whatever, this is what we do. We talk about specifics about what's going on in our churches. And I mean, it just is so that what connects for me is what, what it, seems as though your session is wrestling with is really the question that we all need to wrestle with all the time. Um, and that is, you know, we get so stuck around these tables trying to figure out what will work. And sometimes we, we make a decision based on like, well, what's the likelihood that it's going to pay off in X, Y, or Z way. And what we're trying to figure out is like, 
what's going to happen. Like, what do we need to yes. do to make something happen? And that that's that's not our choice. We don't get to choose what happens. The choice we have is whether to be faithful. That's our power. That's our choice. That's our agency. And our faithfulness does not pre-describe what's going to happen. And if you doubt that, I mean, like if you if you read Christian self-help books, you will think it does. But if you read actual scripture um, and the witness of the saints, you will understand that it does not. Our faithfulness doesn't predetermine what will happen, but the grace of God exists for us to be faithful. And then the reality is we can't see the totality of what happens with our faithfulness. And it just seems like those women on your session are, are there for, for such a time as this to remind everybody that, hey, it's not our job to pick what happens. It's our job to be faithful and to be faithful even in those situations where it's really risky and uncertain. And the reality is, like, if I mean, I say this to my girls all the time, like when they're squabbling or when, you know, something doesn't go wrong and they are in their feelings or, you know, and just say, like, if you can only be kind and loving when you're getting exactly what you want, exactly when you want it, you're not kind and loving, right? Like, your your love comes out in the times when you are not getting what you want and when it is not. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a connection to be made to our faithfulness as well. It is easy and worthy to be faithful to God in times of sunshine and prosperity and double digit growth. Um, It is easy to continue to seek God's will for how to make more of the same happen. It is holy and generative when we have the courage to be faithful in the face of uncertainty, to be faithful unto death. And ultimately, all of our congregations and all of us individually are are gearing up for our turn to be faithful unto death and through death. Like that's so I just I, I love these women coming and, and bearing witness to that. And because I just think a lot of our congregations, because historically the Presbyterian Church has had so much cultural agency and so much cultural um power that that we have in past seasons that we're looking back longingly at this time you know we've been able to push certain buttons and pull certain level levers and get certain results that we authentically thank god for and attribute to god and dedicate to god and and those levers and buttons don't work anymore or we don't have access to them and it is so natural for us to think what do we do now you know like the passengers on a ship in a great storm and one old lady says, well, captain, what do we do? And the captain says, pray. And she says, is it as bad as that? Right? Like that's <laughs> where we are. And the reality is, if you think about it for a second, that's where we always should have been. And yeah. it's where we always have been. We just haven't been aware of it. Um, especially in the historically white church, we've been sick unto death for a very, very long time. We just haven't known it because we've been drunk and drugged off of success and the culture's approval. So we're at a place in our congregation um, in which we're at the very edge of the very real possibility of there being very quickly, more people from the neighborhood mm-hmm. than historic members of the church. So the edge of faithfulness. Yes. And 
one of the things we've had to call out is this sense of, and I just said our congregation, and it's not ours. We've had to call out this sense of, wait, this is our church, and those people are coming into our church. And when people from the neighborhood were kind of trickling in and then um, more or less assimilating into the Mm -hmm. culture already there, then that felt pretty good. But now that we're on the edge of a major shift, people are nervous. Mm -hmm. And so the temptation is to pull back, conserve, um, subtly, uh, intentionally, or unintentionally undermine uh, faithfulness. And Mm -hmm. it is a struggle. Well, and you know, when our congregations get to a certain place, when it becomes not nice to have people, but like life-saving to have people come and join the congregation. You begin to authentically want people because you see that you authentically need them. So at first it's just feels like pure gift. And then you realize, oh, if these people are going to, if these people are going to belong to our church, then it becomes their church. And that means they have the same reasonable expectations and roles and Um, responsibilities to shape and gift and change as we do. And, you know, so we want our church to grow, but we don't want it to change. And the reality is it does not, there's no such thing as growth without change. And I think that's so hard because when people finally start to dream of growing, they dream of people, no matter what they look like, they dream of people who are going to be just like them. And Mm -hmm. when a congregation is in a long plateau of just steadiness or a long plateau of slow decline, the people who are there are there because it works for them, right? The people for whom it was not working have already left. That's right. So the people who are there are there because they, they get, um, maybe they really authentically understand it's not perfect, but, but it meets deep, deep needs for them. And so for people to come in and start changing the things, um, that, that are giving them that are sacred, uh, you know, it's hard and mm, it's idol busting. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just really like, I think it's on the one hand as a pastor, you, you care for people. And so you don't take delight in their pain and you really want to sort of give people a context of how to celebrate this and how to see the goodness of God. In it. And also like, there's just some internal growth and change that we can't protect people from. And we'd be unfaithful if we did that, like this process exposes our idolatry and it's hard it's hard yeah the mission remains the mission Mm -hmm. and very quickly we can make the mission our comfort our ease our preferences and or just survival or just survival yeah and i think the reality is and you know i've sat around these tables and you have too where someone says like we've got enough to last for this long so we need to you know we need to rethink what we're doing and where our resources are so that we can hold on a little longer and it's faithful for people around the table to say for what yes right so we have to be good stewards we have to be, and we have to remember that there's no point in our survival if we are not being faithful. If we're not going out, if we're not doing the thing that we were created and called together to do, that mm. then God will will scatter us, right? So, I'm grateful for those women in your community, and they are amazing. They are amazing. Mm. So, what's astonishing you? Well, uh, this Wednesday evening. Um, we are going to have a uh, one of our very last, I hope, 
virtual services um, that will be a memorial service for a, um, a member of our congregation who actually died a year ago. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, when we all sort of hoped that this would be a three month. Mm. <laughs> um, and so um, this a member of our church's name is Robert um, was very loved and also had just had a long season of suffering uh, a long and it just really had to um, had some health disasters um, and just really bore more than we would ever like to believe any one of God's beloved would ever have to bear. Right. Yeah. Um, and he, um, he came into our community, he and his fiance, um, a woman named Nicole, um, came into our community right before they were, I don't know, not right before, but uh, right bef before they were going to get married. And then he had this health outcome and that delayed their marriage. And he really had some really long-term effects of that um, from that. And they, um, after a period of recovery um, and well after the point, it realized that like there was no going back to before time. Right. And then um, they decided you mean that they were still getting married. And so um, I was um, really honored to uh, preside at their marriage um, worship service, um, which was really just the holiest, you know, I mean, like w marriage is, you know, an expression of ministry. I mean, that's what we believe that mm -hmm. the marriage covenant is a way that we live out our faith in Jesus Christ. And like, that's what you learn in seminary. And that's like the theology, like, I mean, yeah. And also like, I mean, there's just so much, there's so much cultural conversation about what marriage is sure. and so much romantic fairy tale stuff. Like, it's just sort of hard to really drill down to the essence of what do we as believers, mm. like what, what is the, what is God's gift of marriage? Um, that what's that sac sacred core without all of the things that we've wrapped around it and um and just seeing these two uh people enter into this marriage covenant in the reality of like for them for better or for worse wasn't theoretical like they they were already they'd experienced it and it, it you know was very clearly not not going anywhere and and it would be so natural and and real and nothing to shame if they had decided you know what we can't we're not going to do this now and that was not what they wanted to do and it just and and bearing witness what they chose to do um and bearing witness to that and having that happen in the context of our congregation and letting people look at you know this is not doesn't look like what the bridal magazines say but this this is what love is and um that was really I might have to pause this. I don't understand what what is going on. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is real. This is real life what real we're doing life, here. Man. We're sitting here on our porch and um s some people I did not recognize showed up carrying lots of equipment and it turns out they had come to clean my neighbor's house. <laughs> I was like, I wish you were here to clean my house. But in fact, you are not. So I had to um, thank them and send them on their way, sadly. If anyone would ever like to send one, someone to my house to clean it, I will gladly open the door. Um, anyway, 
the point is, we saw this um, manifestation of the steadfast love of God and just the real, almost unspeakable beauty of sacred love and really what um, what a shadow that was of the kind of love that Jesus has for us, the kind of love that is incarnational and shows up in the better and the worse and is undeterred by real pain and real suffering and real unmet expectations. And, um, and uh, Robert died a year ago today, and so we are having a virtual memorial service for him on Wednesday night and was just trying to, and you and I talked about Monday because I was saying like, I, I always think that worship services, giving thanks to God for the life of someone we love, they're just so powerful, important and healing. And it's really um, sacred as a community that we don't just go on, like we don't just move on. And we don't say to people like, essentially, like we don't degrade the the promise of salvation by saying, oh, well, they're with heaven, you know, right. in heaven with God mm-hmm. right now. I mean, that is true. And that doesn't, that doesn't dissipate all of the real pain and loss of being still in time and not having this person and, and having lots of really sacred questions about why and where healing was on this side of eternity. And also wanting to be able to honor his life. Um, and his life was not defined to me, uh, by his suffering, but by the way that he loved in it and through it and beyond it. And I think that that's part of our job always is to name the holy and that's so holy. Um, and it, it just, you know, having the chance to to put the service together is a deep honor and just a, a reminder of that was a beautiful thing. And I think about as close to incarnational love as I've ever seen in my flesh and, and, a kind of love that um, it's hard to even put words around it because it's so, so different than the kinds of love that our culture celebrates, celebrates, right? Um, And that's not, I'm not, it's not ranking. It's not about ranking and saying better or worse. It's just about saying like, don't, don't miss the beauty and the sacredness of this love. And, um, and honestly, I was thinking about their marriage and thinking and being astonished by his legacy of loving and just how much it cost and how and 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 his wife his wife's and um and then i was also thinking about like the story that just came out in the news in the past couple of weeks of like bill and melinda gates getting a divorce mm. and just the contrast of again not shaming not blaming I haven't read any stories about, uh, you know, it's always a headline and I see the headline and I don't read the story because I, you know, it's not my place, but I also just, I can't help but note the contrast of um, where sacred love is most often found and, and we think that an unbreakable enduring love is going to be found in places where there is wealth and power and authority and prestige and and material blessings um and it is found there but also so paradoxically in the same way that the love of god is most fully magnified on the cross like Mm. real human love is so often found and magnified in the places that none of us want to go right so like you know how how you are called and committed to steadfast love and faithfulness 
to your spouse, not after they become a billionaire, but after they become permanently disabled and what just, you know, right. I, I don't know. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm a little nervous about naming that cause I don't, you know, I'm not saying good, bad, bad, like I'm not, I just can't help but notice that, um, and marvel at what that means. And I also just, again, like this whole discipline of astonishment is to notice I think the burning bushes that are right in front of our faces that it's just easy sure. to miss and to not ponder, turn aside and ponder and say, what does this mean? And wasn't there an article in the paper about them? Yes. Yeah, yeah there mean, was. So yeah. you were not the only one astonished uh, by their love and including our congregation because Nicole has filled in for mm -hmm. me. Uh, while on vacation. Um, yeah, she's in, a gifted in, preacher. In those normal yeah. times way back before yeah. the pandemic. And I believe the very first time she preached for me, um, Robert was there with her. And um, if, if I remember that correctly, I, I think that's that's right. And the folks at Dorada Church fell in love with them mm -hmm. and continued to ask her or ask me about them. How are they mm -hmm. doing? How is he doing? And um, when uh, they heard that he died, they were um, saddened. And um, I got a number of calls and emails asking for Nicole's contact information mm -hmm. um, because we love both of them as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think honestly, we, we think of a marriage covenant as being so much about the people in it, and it is. Yes. And also, yes. it bears witness yes. and we, to but Jesus. But we say that in our theology of marriage. There's a, right. there's a, a thing in the uh, Presbyterian Book of Common Worship which contains the marriage ceremony. There's a, um, a document called Statement on the Gift of Marriage. Right. And it has a line in there about marriage being not just about the two people, but as a as a sign of, you know, God's covenant love in the world. It's mm -hmm. really beautiful. I, I'm not doing it justice, but um, well, and I should just hasten to say this is not about shaming or blaming. I mean, we live in a fallen world and sometimes covenants break and sometimes sure. institutions fail. And I and and, you know, God loves the people in a marriage more than the abstraction of the marriage, right? So it's not yes. about shaming people who are in a marriage that fails, but it is about saying, let's not, let's not overlook what is so beautiful. And also like, I don't mean to, I don't mean to turn Robert and Nicole's very real story into some sort of chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> you know, I mean like so much real pain, so much real suffering and, and, I mean, they are saints in the sense that we are sanctified by God, but not, you know, Robert was known for his smile um, before and after and during his illness. And also, you know, he wasn't always smiling and no, no, nor do any of us always have to like we're not defined by our worst moments. And there have to be real places where we can, you know, cry out and name. I just um, in a year that's been filled with so much suffering and frankly, you know, so much, mm, I mean, we can call it lamenting, but also we could call it whining sometimes, you know, and I just, um, for me, speaking, speaking for me, um, I just, it was a gift to pause and remember, um, not just the goodness of knowing that Robert, I believe is healed and fully alive, um, and the reunion that awaits, um, but also just the, the 
gift it was to know him and to know him in every moment in his life and the gift it was um, the gift that their marriage was to the community mm. um, and the testimony that it, it was and that they were in it. And I'm, I'm astonished by that. And I just want to name it and honor it and give thanks to God for it. Oh, that's good. That's so good. What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Well, Sunday afternoon, my son and I were driving down the highway here in the city. My son is seven. Um, I'm sure he had no idea what the words on the back of this SUV meant. Um, but um, um, you know those, um, those kind of big block letters that people use to um, put their address on the front of their house? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's that size and that clear. So someone clearly went to a lot of trouble uh, to put on the back of their SUV, the window, in big block letters, the COVID vaccine, 666, is the mark of the beast. I mean, just, it's like, oh, okay, clearly you believe this. And, um, you know, I know that there are some um, groups that believe that the vaccine is made from fetal tissue, that the vaccine has microchips, um, that the vaccine has the devil's um, uh, signature, DNA, whatever. I, I'm thinking about truth. I'm thinking about the very real possibility that uh, that at another time in my life, especially in my young Christian walk, I might have been there. Susceptible. To yeah, that. I yeah. might have been in 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 that group. I I might have been that person with that. Um, I don't know if I would have put it on my car because, right, I don't like things on my car like that. But um, to be in that line of thinking. Um, so I, on the one hand, I'm very aware that the Apostle Paul reserved his strongest words, yeah. not for the pagan culture, but for those who named the name of Christ, but whose teaching, whose doctrine was the not honoring to Christ, right? right. Um, that that's when Paul is saying blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm sorry, that's not Paul. That's in one of the Gospels. But yes. talking about like that, that's what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Yes, and so there's a part of me that just wants to just fight that. Mm -hmm. But then there's another part of me that has compassion, seeks to understand why they think that um, because... My understanding of scripture, my understanding of Jesus leads me in a different place. And so part of me wants to be in relationship with, if um, someone like that would be open, both to understand and to share my understanding. Right. Well, I mean, I think the reality is the temptation and it is a well, it is a, a powerful one from 
the enemy of our souls. The temptation is to see that in scorn. Yeah. And and there's no scorn in the body of Christ, right? So so if 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 we see something and we our instinct is to mock or um, pride, spiritual pride or scorn, you know, we we then it's a double it's a double hit by by the enemy that not only has the person who is putting that up in my humble opinion been misled but that we have been induced to sin against our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in our hearts right so there's no part of scorn and I do think though this is the reason why you know there are so many people who are so um apathetic to the call to evangelism Mm -hmm. and I'm like friends this is why it matters it matters that we tell the truth about who God is. It matters that we make relationships with people because people are vulnerable. And because when the devil shows up, shows up quoting scripture, right? Like the, this is always, you know, this is what I I think, I think what Jesus is talking about when people are going to say, Lord, Lord, like, you know, we did miracles, we did whatever, like, yeah, there are spiritual forces and deception is the name of the game. And we've said before, like, nobody says, Hey, I'm the devil. Come worship me. Right. right. Like that's or like, I, let's do evil together. Like everything is cloaked in goodness. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it really is about working out our faith with fear and trembling and sober humility and just praying, um, not only for the enlightenment of other people, but for our own enlightenment and to say, I know that there's sin and error in my life and God give me the humility and the grace to, to, um, be teachable, um, and growable and um, also to be used by you in places where, um, you know, lies come masquerading as, as truth. I mean, cause it's, it's everywhere. I was telling you that I saw something, someone had posted about like DNA is from God, but the vaccine injects RNA and RNA is the devil's DNA. And like that is not true. <laughs> we all have RNA in every single one of our cells. And I, you know, but again, like it's not about mocking. Um, and, and, and not those, those are not facts, but the idea that the, the underneath truth, that there is a great battle going on, that's not a lie. And, and so, you know, that's always why things are so tricky is because, nothing's ever presented as an invitation to do straight up evil and nothing is ever sold as a lie. Right. I mean, you, you wrap lies up in truth and that's exactly what, again, when Jesus was being tempted in the desert, the devil doesn't show up and say, Hey, worship. Well, you know, he doesn't start off saying worship me, not God. He doesn't ever say worship me and not God just says, Hey, here's another path to get to where you want to go. And here's an easier path. And here's all the reasons in scripture why this is a faithful path. And so this is why, you know, we're talking about celebrating Pentecost, why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit, because we, we need to renew our minds in Christ and we can't do that on our own. And we're not powerful enough or wise enough to discern truth from lie. And anytime we see someone who appears to us to be clearly deluded, we need to understand that they're not stupid, they're not weak, and they're not un- unloved or unloving. Um, you know, we have been saved by grace and we are preserved by grace. And if people are in danger, um, those are our people. And um, Yeah, one of the things that makes me think about, makes me ask is, where am I them right now? Mm-hmm. Where 
in my theology? Where in my thinking am I just off? And I don't see it. And we don't see it. And And we'll never see it. I'm totally right. Obviously. Unless someone walks with me, shows me a like if I were having a conversation with this person um, with the thing about COVID on their their car, um, because as I've read a couple of articles about people who think this way, they see this as a sign of the end times. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, how can you see this as a sign of the end times and not um, injustice as a sign? Mm-hmm. Why, why this and not that? Well, and I think that is the problem is what we all are called to do is to have a total paradigm shift um, in terms of what's true and what's not and what's good and what's not. And, and we're all somewhere on that spectrum of needing to, to be born again. And um, I think oftentimes when I hear people talking about these lies that are dangerous, I mean, what's also clear is it seems to me often that your passion comes from the way that might affect you, not yes, how it affects them. Absolutely. And the truth you offer comes coded in scorn and nobody needs your scorn or shame. And you have contempt for what you perceive as weakness and that's natural and that's human, but Jesus doesn't have contempt for weakness. Mm. And so I just think, you know, we are so um, proud of our facts and we are so indifferent to our hearts and this is the problem like I'm not asking and particularly when we're talking about injustice it's not about shaving the edge off truth to make it more palatable we can't do that but if our hearts are full of hatred and contempt um, then then we can't you know if we have truth it's as a gift that we're meant to share and it's to the glory of God not to the glory of us. And that's, I think, what we so often get wrong. Yeah, you have um, just reminded me of something that I've thought but I've never shared, and that is um, there are times um, in my quiet, sober moments that church leadership feels very dangerous to my Mm -hmm. soul. Mm -hmm. Like, so I'm in this position of leadership I stand before people, open a sacred text, and talk about God. And then there are times when decisions need to be made, big decisions that affect uh, not only the congregation, but the community in which the congregation is located. And there are many times when I I just think I'm right. Mm -hmm. I I rarely go into a situation... (laughs) where I don't think I'm right. Um, And that can become, uh, that can morph, that can downgrade into a place, a kind of thinking that says, I'm right because I have a text to back me up and I have this place of leadership. Or I'm right because I believe it. Yes. As opposed to, yeah. I mean, I. And if you disagree with me, you don't simply disagree with me, but you are the devil. And I must, over. it, it is now, a spiritual battle, not between me and the enemy of my soul, but between the two of us. Right. And I think like, obviously, anytime we walk into a situation and we say what we believe, I mean, we say what we believe is right. Like none of us profess 
a belief that we think is wrong, right? So, I, I mean, of course, everybody thinks they're right about everything all the time. And if there was a place that you did, you know, you came to see that what I, this is wrong, we stop saying it, right? Like we, I mean, that's just the nature of living inside of reality. We don't say things that we think are wrong. We say things that we think are right. Um, I think that the, the key comes from having a commitment to truth and having a right orientation towards outcomes, right? So to be able to say, I am committed to telling the truth, even when it's scary and when it's hard and when it's unpopular or when it appears that it won't work. And I'm also not committed to a particular outcome, no matter how passionately I believe that it's correct, because I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God with those outcomes, right? Um, Even And so I, I, I think that's what's hard, but that's what allows us to come into a situation, especially like a deliberative situation in the church, and everyone can show up and say, this is what I think is true. And then we trust the Holy Spirit in the room to lead us to a particular outcome. And if there's disagreement, which, you know, there, there, there isn't a lot at the Grove, but if there is disagreement, then we all go into it just saying like, Lord, I don't want to be right. Make us faithful. And so if faithfulness looks like, quote, my side prevailing, that shouldn't matter. Or if faithfulness looks like the other side prevailing, what matters is that it's faithfulness and that we walk into it with a humility that my understanding of what faithfulness is might be wrong. It might be wrong. And obviously, we don't have to read very much scripture to be able to see wonderful examples of how that's often the case. God's people are are loved and they're wrong. And being wrong is not a sin. Being wrong is not a sin. Sinning is a sin. <laughs> um, but I think we often treat being wrong as a sin. And so we want to avoid it at all costs. And, you know, the the first, you can't and have... It makes it- more difficult you can't to repent. admit. Yeah. Well, you yeah. can't repent you if you can't wrong. admit that you're yeah. wrong, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, it's it's very uh, it, it's very interesting. And then figuring out, I think, when to speak and when to be silent and when to let people be and when to and when the spirit is inviting us into. A re- I mean, that's just a really deep spiritual work. Yeah. Um, so. So, what are you thinking about? Oh gosh. Um, Honestly, I I have been thinking about the um, police shooting in Elizabeth City mm. not very long ago, Anthony Brown Jr. and I and it's it's right around the corner from us, and I haven't um, spoken about it publicly because I I'm just you just have to sit with it for a while and let it soak in deeper than another name or I mean to our earlier conversation like it's not another data point for our side of the culture war right like this is a a tragedy um and I and as I was thinking about it I was remembering um a book that I read years ago that I still really like um it's called Here If You Need Me and it's by a woman named Kate Braystrap and she's a Unitarian pastor um, and she was a chaplain to the main warden service. So those are law officers that they deal with, like, all the wilderness situations. So, like, parks and wild, like, right? So they're not police officers. They're not in the sheriff's department. They're in the warden department. So they do, like, hunting and game. and But what they do a lot of... Um, is recovery of bodies. They do search and rescue and recovery. So like if people 
get in accidents. Um, they're the ones who will go out and try. If they get lost, they're mm. the ones who will try to go out and find them. Um, if they'll try to recover bodies, if, if things go wrong, when people are doing adventurous things like snowmobiling across frozen lakes and then turns out the lake wasn't as frozen. I mean, like just mm. they're, they're often called to be at the intersection of life and death. And, um, and often when terrible crimes occur, um, kidnappings and murders and assaults that lead to murder um, and people try to hide bodies um, they go <laughs> they go to these wild places where not very many people go and so one thing that the people um, and and they are most I mean she would say when she wrote this book which is probably 15 years ago they're mostly men so these men often are finding the bodies of people who've just been victimized in horrible ways and and um and she as a chaplain is caring for them as they are then mm. caring for others and interacting with families and it's anyway it's a beautiful book and um she was telling the story about one of the wardens that she knows um who was a father and had three little girls and um how he had been sent out you know, someone had been abducted and they had been looking for her and hoping to find her alive and had not. And he had been part of the team that had found the body and then had gone home to his daughters and um, was letting his daughters um, paint, paint his toenails mm. and was um, talking to them as, you know, in his professional life, he had seen women be so brutalized. And then he has these little girls and he's trying to think about you know, how does he keep them safe? And also how does he not, not crush them by feeling like everywhere they go there, but also it's a real danger. It's not, it's not a theoretical possibility. He's, you know, and so he, I guess, told her and she was recounting this conversation that, that he had with his daughters, his little, you know, six-year-old daughters who are like painting his toenails, sparkly purple paint. And he was saying, um, if you ever get abducted, don't ever get in the car. Like, don't, I don't care if they have a gun on you. I don't care if they have a knife to your neck. Um, you make your stand in the most, you know, don't let them get you in a car and take you mm, to the mm -hmm. woods because then it's over. And he's telling his little daughter that, like, you make wow. your stand. Like, it's, you might get hurt, but you have a better chance there. Like, don't let fear stop you. And, um, and I was thinking about that story with, Anthony Brown Jr. and just seeing all the connections between the way black parents um, and parents of children of color have to give the talk yeah. to their kids and thinking about him and this being shot four times in the back of the head with his hands on a steering wheel and we don't know, you know, um, that part of the tape has been seen by the family what happened before and after hasn't been seen. What they're saying is he was using his car as a weapon. I mean, you know, whatever. What people always say to make this less tragic is, why didn't he just, mm -hmm. you know, why? And I think, you know, the connection between this man having to tell his daughter, I can't tell you this is how you keep yourself safe. 
I can just tell you if you're in this much danger, this is your better chance. And how much it just resonates to me, like in that moment of terror, if someone is saying like, trying to get away in my car is dangerous. And also saying still is dangerous. Like there's just no good choice. And just the poignancy of that. And I think so how I need people to understand that as much as we don't want to believe it, people of color in this country are in as much danger from some police officers as women walking through unlit parking lots at night are in danger from some men, right? Not all men, but the danger is real. Right. And as women and people who love women and people who are raising daughters, we, we have to have these horrible conversations about mm-hmm. you have to know what to do even when you don't have any good choices. And I need people to see that um, it just, that that terror was real and that choice, um, and we don't even know what his choice was. We just don't know. Um, but But you have to be able to understand why someone would just want to get away and feel like being surrounded by police yelling at you with guns standing still does not is is as dangerous as letting a man with a gun lead you out to the middle of the woods and both men with guns will promise you that if you just do what they say you'll be safe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not true yeah and i think um i mean that's a it's a great story in terms of understanding um, that situation with police because most men when walking down the street at night would not even think of a sexual assault that mm-hmm. just, it just doesn't just doesn't come to mind um, and I and don't I, and no woman doesn't and exactly and I was gonna say if you just flip it to a police situation from the time I was, before I was a teenager, yeah. I knew I had to be aware of those situations. And, you know, again, and I've, you know, told this story before on this podcast that when I was, um, you know, stopped, at least it was, in the, <laughs> I was walking through a neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, stopped by a cl- plainclothes officer um, he was maybe about eight feet away from me and wanted me to come to him, and I refused. And every time he took a step toward me, I took a step back. And it took every ounce of everything I had within me not to turn and run. I mean, I, it just, yeah. that was my instinct. Um, and I just continued to slowly walk backward. And we had a conversation, and he told me why he was stopping me. Um, but I never, um, I didn't run, and I didn't let him get too close. But that, and, and listen, I was what, 20, 21? How old are you? First year of seminary? Something like that. 21, 21 22. Yep. yep. And dressed like my nerdy self. So I had. I, I remember to this day, I was wearing, um, uh, back in the day, uh, duck head. Yeah. <laughs> I was wearing khakis, a button-down shirt, and um, loafers. I mean, just be, right? And so uh, the, the line he used was, 
you don't look like you belong in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know, I know what that is. I know yeah. what, right? Well, and, and so, and you check out the connection between how in these situations, I mean, when women are assaulted, we want to know what they were wearing. What, exactly. And yes. what we want to say to black people is if you just won't dress like you're asking for it, just don't dress like you're a criminal and you yeah. won't get treated. Okay. It's a lie and it's a lie and it's a lie and it's ridiculous. And it's the same it's the same thing. And and I'd be interested to know, and there's no way to know, because again, as, as weary and overwhelmed as we are with all of the stories that are being told now, um, we the stories that being are being told are not all the stories that there are to be told, right? right? And so I think, you know, when we talk about the number of women who've experienced sexual assault, um, and the number is like a third, um, and it just, there's there's no way to know how many people of color have experienced um, terrorism from police agencies? And obviously there's a spectrum, just as there's a spectrum of mm-hmm. assault. But, mm-hmm. you know, in both situations, you know, people talk a lot about how so much of sexual assault prevention is is geared towards women and none towards men. Like, we don't have programs teaching men how not to sexually assault women, right? right. And, it, and again, this connection of... Um, so much of how we have, to the extent that we've historically dealt with it at all, it has all been geared towards here's how people of color cannot get brutalized by the police. And it and and when we start to say, like, can we start talking about changing the culture of law enforcement in this country so that abuse doesn't happen and terrorism is then that we meet the same kind of resistance of like, hey, there's a serious sickness unto death in our culture and denying it makes us comfortable, but it doesn't bring us healing. Yeah. And like that, um, the officer in that story, I mean, he had to enter into a world in which he saw the painful reality of what his, of of his daughter's world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's it's necessary for white people to be able to um, sit with that pain and the reality of of, of that violence and trauma. Um, I remember uh, sharing with a friend of my, a classmate of mine, what had happened to me, and I mean she was just shocked. Um, um, but it's just necessary, and and the the sad reality is. Most white Americans can live and die without seeing that. They right. don't have to. Because even if they know some black people or or really sincerely like and claim as friends, they have not done the work of creating a relationship where there's enough trust where those stories would be told. Because just like a woman isn't, I don't mean to make a, a facile comparison, but you know, a woman is not going to walk up to someone who she knows isn't going to believe her and say, let me tell you the story sure. of this terrible violation mm-hmm. that happened. Like, you're mm-hmm. not going to do that. You don't mm-hmm. need to be re-traumatized by having someone tell you that it didn't happen or it was your fault yeah. or, you know, so, so I think a lot of white people will say, oh, well, I don't know anyone to whom this has happened and therefore it's really not happening. And, and the black people I do know, they're fine. They're fine. They yeah, say, right? They're I mean, mm, middle class whatever people and they're they're right. like me well and we were saying this before i think not on the podcast about how like a lot of white people live 
with this unnamed assumption that there's a whole silent community of middle-class black people who are thriving, who are unaffected by all of this, and that these are the kinds of black people that are worthy and that, and, and so it's not affecting them. And the way you know it's not affecting them is you're not hearing from them, but they exist out there somewhere. And the only people who are being harmed by this are the people who, I mean, eh, like the short skirt people, like the people who are kind of asking for it and the people who don't really matter and the people who need to learn their lesson. And the the reason that you're not hearing from this large silent community of middle-class, respectable black people who are not saying, oh, the police are good to me, is because they don't exist. Listen, I grew up in suburbia. (laughs) We were the only black family in our neighborhood. Um, And it's in the context of my family that my parents, my father specifically, had to say, look, this is the real world. This is what you need to do when stopped by the police. These kinds of things happen. This is what can happen to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Not so if, it, when, right? Yes. Well, it's it, my point is it's in the context of those very middle class families where you really have the talk. I mean, I'm sure in in in, um, in families of of a different economic level they have the talk as well. But there, it's a myth that a black middle class family doesn't deal with these issues right. or doesn't talk about these issues. No, they are very real and very present right. because. Those families have especially because there is a constant encountering of, you know, the white community. You are you are probably hyper aware. Right. And I think and again, we're not suggesting that it if it just stopped happening to middle class black people, it would be okay. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that a lot of people do think that. Mm -hmm. And that's I mean, in my opinion, immoral. But even if you do think that. It, it's still not okay. I mean, this, this assumption you're making is not, is not real. And um, I think that's what people, people don't understand. They think the silence is telling them something and the silence is telling them something completely, completely different. And um, yeah, that's, so that's what I'm thinking about this week and just, um, you know, waiting for this tape to be released this i mean there's just no reason um there's just no reason i mean it's a public trust issue we we put trust and give um you know the power to do to you know to do violence that can't be undone like no matter what happens anthony brown jr's life on this side of eternity is over and that will never be changed and when we give people that kind of power it it needs accountability and it needs transparency and you know the whole thing that people the easy solution people proposed five years ago is body cameras body cameras body cameras when it's filmed it'll magically stop happening i mean a obviously not and b not if that evidence can continue to be suppressed and hidden i mean that is done in the name of the public and so the public has a right to know what it's paying for Um, so that we can decide. Like a majority of Americans might see that tape and say we're cool with this, um, but everyone needs to see um, the tape. So, anyway, what are you preaching about, my friend? What am I preaching? Um, you know, we're in the series on uh, the Holy Spirit, and um, this week I'm thinking about 
this text from Titus, chapter 3, that says, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but it'll be pretty close, um, when, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and rebirth through the Holy Spirit, something like that. Um, and I love the text. I love this Christian doctrine of new birth, rebirth by the Holy Spirit, that um, uh, the Holy Spirit makes us alive to God through Christ. And I understand that part of the text. I am struggling with, and I feel bad as a preacher saying this, don't judge me. But I, I feel bad that I, I'm struggling with the so what of it, right? So I'm looking at the text. I'm like, okay, yes, uh, uh, by faith in Jesus, we are um, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes us alive unto God. I can preach that. And I'm saying, okay, so how does this connect with our mission? What are we to do with this? And I don't have that yet. You know, I. And it just makes me think of, there's an Angela Davis quote, I think, and I think I'm properly quoting her, something like, we must never stop testifying that another world is possible and never stop believing it. You know, I mean, I think that believing in new birth, um, believing in regeneration, not as doctrine, but as a possible lived reality is what allows us to be foolishly faithful and to say like Shalom oh, is not out. a Go on. pie Going. in the this sky. You're, you're preaching. Go <laughs> it's ahead. It's not a someday yeah, pie yeah. in the sky yeah, thing only. On. It's a here and now thing, yeah. but that's not possible if we don't believe that it's possible. I mean, right? Like uh. it is possible, but we'll never access it because yeah. we'll have told ourselves that it's not possible. Maybe so I should have gone to your seminary. That's good. <laughs> Keep going. No, that's <laughs> no. good stuff. I just think like believing in regeneration, not as a like moved from the line to hell into the line to heaven, right? Gotcha. It's not that. And so often that's what we preach. Like mm -hmm. I used to be this, but now I'm not, but really mm, I'm the same. No, it's, I am different. I yes. am not who I used to be. Yes. And so life is different for me. Yes. And that's not because I'm special. That's because that's who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And that's why if we talk a lot about Christians on the right and the left of the culture war, which has invaded the Christian church, like putting their faith in politics, right? We think like, oh, if we can just get enough Christians to vote yes. for whoever or vote for whoever and say, mm -hmm. friends, that's not what we believe. We believe in regeneration. Mm -hmm. We believe in people being born again in Christ as part of the body of Christ. And when that happens, we don't need a political system, a king, a president to come yeah. in and make us do good. Like the covenant is written on yeah. our hearts of flesh. Mm -hmm. And and we know how to love our neighbors and walk in mercy and do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. Like that's what I believe in, not only as a personal change, but as the root of shalom, the redeeming of the whole world that God is doing. That's what we believe in. Okay, that was really good. Well, good luck with that. I'm not preaching this week. <laughs> well, you know what? I am I'm happy to hear that you're um, taking some time off because I know 
that that means that when you get back in the pulpit, it's just going to be amazing. Well, I don't because know. Because I know how much you love to preach. I do love I know to preach. How, so when you're not in the pulpit, like I know that Sunday, and I'm, I'm sure the preacher who's going to be filling in for you is going to be great and he wonderful. Great. and yes. uh, Cedric Lundy. Faithful He's great. to the world, uh, faithful to the word. Um, but I also, knowing what I know about Kate Murphy, there's just going to be a part of you that wants to be doing that. So yeah. next I, week, uh, the week after, yeah, it's on. It's on. No, I, I mean, I, I called you on Friday and I was like, oh, something's wrong with me because I just don't. I did not have any energy around preaching, which I already had asked for and asked Cedric if he would come in, and it's just he's such a blessing and. All of our communities need more than one voice, right? So that's Absolutely. just period. Yes. Since none of us are Jesus, <laughs> we all need other voices. So it's just good. But I also recognize that, um, you know, when you are when you're too tired to do the thing you love the most, you need to rest. Warning sign and, right there. And also, you know, sometimes what you need to do to recover is to take a step back and watch and realize, like, oh. I want to do that. And yeah. so that is really helpful. And we get to go to the Festival of Homiletics virtually next week and um, hear a lot of really amazing preachers. So I I am um, just excited for Restored Vigor on the other side of that. And uh, yeah, so that's it, right? Um, yeah. Thank you all so much for listening to us as always, um, and hopefully the Jesus through us. And if you want to hear this message that Yolando um, is going to share at Derida, D-E-R-I-T-A Presbyterian Church, you can go to their YouTube channel. You can check out old messages, binge them on the Podbean <laughs> website, Derida Church I knew on you Podbean. And uh, you can go to their website, which is website, which is Derida Presbyterian dot. Derida Pres. Derida no. Yes, Derrida Prez. Okay, so just Google Derrida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you you will you will get over there. Man, the birds are like really singing us out today. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. You can um, check out our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast, on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can worship with us and. Um, I just really encourage you to tune in. Um, Pastor Cedric Lundy is going to be preaching, and he is fire preaching on Nehemiah and um, resistance in the face of opposition in rebuilding, and it's going to be great. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.